Last September, we started this sermon series on the Gospel of John. And this week and next week, we're going to understand and apply the most important event in the history of the world and what the entire book of John has been looking towards. When Jesus worked his first sign, turning water to wine, at at the wedding at Cana, he, he initially did nothing because, as he said, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7 and 8, when Jesus taught some things in the synagogue that could be understood as blasphemy, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now, his hour is here. Death is imminent. Shame is imminent. Torture is imminent. The cosmic showdown between the Son of God and the powers, principalities, and rulers is imminent. And the Son of God will face them all with one weapon and one weapon alone his suffering. It's time for us to truly consider what it means to take up our cross and follow him. Please stand for the reading of God's word, John 19, verses 1 to 16. John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat, judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So a quick, quick summary of the Gospel of John up to this point. John begins by telling us who this Gospel is about. The Word of God, God's self-revelation personified, also known as the Son of God. And this eternal divine person took on flesh and was born as the Jewish man, Jesus. 
And this Jesus would then have a multi-year ministry where he'd perform several signs. He'd heal folks. He'd feed folks. He'd raise people from the dead. Amazing feats of power. But these were also amazing feats of love. And they were not only feats of power and feats of love, but they were full frontal assaults against sin, against death, against the devil, and against the empires of the world. Where the Romans did not feed, Jesus fed folks. Where the world could not heal, Jesus healed. The ones whom the world shunned, Jesus invited. And Christ's ministry was one of self-sacrificial love, but such a ministry also meant that Christ had to be very clear about who he was. And there were some who would not have that, namely the Jewish religious leaders. And so at our point in this gospel, Jesus has been betrayed, and he's been given into the hands of the empire. He's been given into the hands of Pilate. And Pilate's heard the accusations, but he's, he's skeptical. And so he does what the Romans would normally do when they're unsure of a verdict. They engage in what the CIA euphemistically today calls enhanced interrogation tactics. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. What might a scourging have looked like? Jesus would have been stripped naked, tied to a post, and beaten, possibly with a whip of cords with bones attached to the ends. And added on to this pain, a crown of thorns was pressed on his head. Now, your head and your, your, your face and your scalp, there are a lot of blood vessels. And so he'd be bleeding a lot. In those first three verses, what we have is we have the powers of the empire softening Jesus up. Because Pilate's not really seeking to do his worst yet. Because he, quite frankly, doesn't really care very much yet. And so in verses 4 and 5, he runs back out to the gathered Jewish leaders, bringing out a probably hobbling, definitely bleeding Jesus as a spectacle. I'm convinced that movies and books only have really one story to tell, and it's the story of Jesus. And so this is, this is, this is Killmonger holding up T'Challa in Black Panther after beating the mess out of him, bellowing, is this your king? Pilate saying, here is the man. He's saying the same thing. He's saying, look, I beat him. I humiliated him. No one's going to follow this guy. So, so we're good, right? The religious leader's response, kill him. Verses 6 and 7, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you, you take him and crucify him. As, as for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be a son of God, says the son of God. It's, it's, actually, it's actually important. In, in, that, in, that, in that text, the, 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 the chief priests are ambiguous. They basically say, he's, he's, he said that he's a son of a God. And that immediately amps up the temperature of this conversation. Because I'm sure that up, up until and through this flogging, Pilate was thinking, look, let me just give these folks what they want, and they'll get off my back about this Jesus guy. But now the agenda is clear. We, the readers, have known this from the beginning. The religious leaders are not going to rest until Jesus is dead. And not just any kind of death. Crucifixion. A death that communicates to the world that Jesus is worthless. That Jesus is nothing but a threat who is only fit to be snuffed out. And so, 
The chief priests pull out the big guns, the claim that Jesus claimed to be a son of a God, because Pilate's going to hear that a little bit differently. Emperors claimed to be sons of the gods. And if this is true of Jesus, if he really did say this about himself, maybe, maybe he is a threat. So Pilate's got a few more questions for our Savior as we prepare for the final showdown. Pilate walks into Jesus to test his theory, and if you remember Jesus' mode in these interrogations and really in the gospel as a whole, you know that there's sass on the way. So Pilate asks Jesus, verse 9, where do you come from? And Jesus' response, nothing. Not a word. And that's probably really, really frustrating for Pilate. Because in Pilate's mind, he's the, he's the boss. Everybody's supposed to do what he says. He's the, he's the representative of Rome, the greatest empire in human history. If Rome asks you a question, you answer the question. But Jesus? Nothing. And Pilate's rightly insulted by this nonviolent flexing that Jesus is doing. And so, so he responds, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free or to crucify you? There's a great scene in The Dark Knight Rises when, 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 when Roland Daggett is yelling, is yelling at Bane, the super, the super strong villain in the movie. He's yelling, I'm the one in charge, I'm the one in charge. And Bane just puts his hand on his shoulder and says, do, do you feel in charge? <laughs> it's chilling because you know that in that moment, like Bane's about to snap this dude's neck. And on the contrary, though, like who's giving off the Bane energy in this scene? A battered and bleeding Jesus. His response to Pilate's claim to power, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now here, we got brilliant doublespeak from Jesus because we, the readers, know what Jesus is saying. We know that he's telling Pilate, the only reason you have any power is because God puts you in that position to enact his plan. You're not killing me. I'm the one in charge. But that's not what Pilate hears. What Pilate hears, when he hears above, he hears his boss. So what he's hearing Jesus say is, we both really know who's in charge, Caesar. And that explains why verse 12 says what it says. After this, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Because in his mind, what Jesus just did was he said, hey, we're on the same page. Caesar's in charge. Pilate doesn't see Jesus as a threat. So then why does Jesus get sent to the cross? Because of verses 12 to 16. So the religious leaders shout in verse 12, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate brings Jesus out a final time. The leaders cry, crucify again, and then perhaps the most heartbreaking exchange of this whole sham trial. Verse 15. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, and the soldiers took charge of him. We have no king but Caesar. We have no ruler but the empire. Back in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel begged Samuel for a king. 
Samuel was upset. God, God was supposed to rule his people. This is the entire purpose of his covenantal relationship with his people. And God told them, if you have a king, he's going to exploit you. He's going to dominate you. He's going to oppress you. And the people said, yeah, 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 that's cool. We still want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And so he gave them a few, each of whom did exactly the things that he told them the king was going to do. But he also gave them a promise through the prophets. He said that he would send his own king, the Messiah, and that this Messiah would rule his people. And that king stood before them as a beaten, bloody man. And their response? Kill that guy. We love the empire. Kill this so-called liberator. We love our oppressors. Kill this, this threat to our limited political and religious power. We declare allegiance to those who don't care about us except in order to keep us in line. Who then are the real traitors to justice in this narrative? Not Jesus. Rather, it's the religious establishment that's seeking to use the sword of the empire for their own gain. Why was Jesus killed? The martyred Oscar Romero said it this way. Jesus died because he got in the way. In fact, this is, I think, the part that we tend to miss when we say with Paul that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We just think of our sins in terms of guilt. Here, Jesus is coming into conflict with sin as a power. And this, is, and, and, and this is actually the way that Paul actually most often talks about sin. He's talking about it as a power that we're enslaved to. Sin in the form of the will to dominate. And what, and what happens when Jesus comes face to face with that? He, he is prepped for the cross. Brothers and sisters, the Gospel of John doesn't have as many ethical commands from Jesus as the other Gospels do. Matthew's got the Sermon on the Mount, Luke has the Sermon on the Plain, Mark's got his own stuff, but, but, but in John, Jesus just seems to like talk about himself a lot. But there's a key commandment that he gives us back in John 15, 12. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. The reason why Jesus doesn't offer a whole bunch of commands in this particular gospel is because his very life is the example. If, if his entire life is a life of love, we're being called to follow him in that life. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's very simple. Jesus says it this way in Matthew. He also says it this way in Luke. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does the Christian life look like? It looks like the way of the cross. And in the religious leaders and in Pilate, we see utter refusals to live the way of the cross. So how, how is that us? How are we like the religious leaders? And if you'll allow me, before, we, before I go into that, I want to make a quick, a quick segue that I think is important. Uh, we haven't talked about this throughout kind of our talk of the Gospel of John, but but, but, but a, lot of, a lot of folks, when they, when, they, when they see the Gospel of John, particularly all of these references to the, Jew, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, this narrative has been historically used by Christians to slaughter and persecute Jewish, Jewish people. None of the statements made in this Gospel about the Jewish leaders are racial or ethnic judgments. Anti-Semitism is evil often politically and economically motivated and contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as with all forms of racial and ethnic exploitation, domination, and violence. This is not about the Jewish people. 
Even, 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 even when we see, even when we see references to the people, we're, we're considering folks in a particular area engaged in, intra, in, in intra-Jewish debates. No, the Jewish people didn't kill Jesus. The chief priests did. A priestly aristocracy did. A religious establishment that saw Jesus as a threat to their power, they're the ones who killed Jesus. And so, if we know that, How do you and I see Jesus as a threat to our way of life? How do you and I see Jesus as a threat to our desires, to our preferences, to our freedoms? When the religious leaders saw Jesus healing and making claims about his identity, they saw someone moving in on their territory. And when the word speaks to you about your own sin, about your selfishness, about your lust, your envy, your need to constantly justify yourself. Do we see the Son of God in the same way? As an obstacle to be crushed rather than a Lord to be heeded. See, you and I, you and I didn't build the first cross, but the author of Hebrews has something to say to those of us who claim to be Christian and yet live lives that are out of step with the gospel. In Hebrews 6, 4-6, to the author says this, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. See, we may not have done it the first time, but in our refusal to repent, we crucify the Lord all over again. But maybe, maybe we're not like the religious leaders. Maybe, maybe we're more like Pilate. See, Pilate didn't see Jesus as a threat. He saw Jesus as a nuisance. For him, the religious leaders were the threat because they could have snitched to the emperor that he led an insurrectionist through his fingers. Pilate is what we like to call an Enneagram 9. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Goodness. Pilate is what we like to call a people pleaser. He chose, he chose not to do what was right, releasing Jesus, because he was afraid that he might be killed, not being an adequate friend of Caesar. And let me tell you this, it is much more important that we be counted as friends of Jesus than that we be counted as friends of Caesar. Friends of Caesar concern themselves with violence and self-protection. If my position is in danger, I'm going to remove any obstacles to it. Friends of Caesar do whatever they can to avoid robust accountability. Because who needs to be accountable when I'm the one in charge? Friends of Caesar are social, academic, political, and economic climbers seeking to amass more and more for themselves, ignoring the fact that the more that you amass, the more opportunities you have to compromise until you will eventually reach a point where the only options you have are sinful options. I think about this when I think about the way, that, the way that the scriptures frame riches, the way that we think about political power in our particular context. Once you get to a certain level in a fundamentally violent imperial structure, your only, Christ, your only Christ-like option may be to leave that space. If you find yourself in a situation where, all of your, where, 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 where being in that place means that all of your options are sinful, get out of that situation. Friends of Caesar concern themselves with the possible bad consequences of just action. Always asking, well, what does this mean for me? Is this you or I? 
Are we afraid to defend our neighbors because of how it might affect us? Are you afraid to speak up about the exploitation of your coworkers because of how it might affect your job? See, a lot of, a lot of workplaces, uh, just kind of in workplace culture, they encourage you to not talk about your salary with your, with your, with your coworkers. And often they'll like make up reasons for it. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't how we operate. We're a family or some other language like that. Well, legally, according to the National Labor Relations Act, they can't stop you or retaliate against you for, for talking about your salary. But when you do, what you find is that that's actually how you can make pay equitable in workplaces that often rely on your fear of retaliation and your ignorance to exploit you. That's just bonus. You just file that. <laughs> But pastor, you say, maybe, maybe I am like the religious leaders. Maybe, maybe I am like Pilate. But what if I lose my influence? Shouldn't I defend my position so I can do more good for the Lord? What if, what if I lose my job? Shouldn't I defend my stability so that I can do more good for the Lord? What if, what if I lose my life? Aren't I more used to the Lord alive? There's a common thread in those anxieties. How we think the Lord uses us. We have to remember this. What is it that the Lord requires of us? Well, he said it in the Gospels. He said, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Hey, this is, this is actually this is a frustrating thing to me that I've heard in some context. There's some people who say that, like, Jesus took up his cross so that you don't have to suffer. <laughs> what? No. No, 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 no. See, Jesus took up his cross so that you could take up yours. Each of us has a cross to bear. And that phrase like rolls off of our tongues, which is insane. Like it's, it's, an, insane th- it's an insane thing for Jesus to command of us. And it's an insane thing for us to affirm. But most of the Christian faith, when you really think about it, is crazy. It just, it just, it just is. It doesn't make sense if Jesus didn't get up. But, 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 because the call to be a follower of Christ is, a, is, is, is when, when, when we say that, we're saying we're not devoting ourselves to upward climbing. We're devoting ourselves to daily death. So yeah, you might lose your influence if you seek to be loyal first and foremost to the kingdom of God and a traitor to the kingdoms of the world. Yes, you might lose your job if you seek to be loyal first to the kingdom of God and a traitor to the kingdoms of the world. Yes, you, yes, you may, as Jesus did, lose your life. But that's what it means when he says, take up your cross. It's not Jesus saying, hey, like, you might be uncomfortable from time to time. The cro- like, crucifixion is a little more than uncomfortable. And when we see Jesus' trial, we see the systematic and systemic railroading of an innocent man. We see the beating and humiliating of the only truly innocent man to ever live. We see the methodical mocking of the Son of God, the creator of the universe. And in those things, we see the consequences of living a truly human life. Because in a world... That's subject to sin, subject to death, subject to the devil. It's filled with conflict and filled with death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his cost of discipleship. Great quote. I've said it before. I gotta say it again. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids them come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples. 
who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. But this is not the end, dear brother and dear sister. Because why did Jesus call us to die? Why does he call us to the way of the cross? It's because it's the only way for us to truly live. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. See, if we want to know Christ, really know Christ, we've got to be willing to become like him in his death. We've got to participate in his sufferings. The strongest Christians are those who have been tested and tried. Those who are persecuted for Christ's sake. Not just persecuted because they're jerks. Persecuted for Christ's sake. Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Persecuted because fighting for justice and comprehensive love of our neighbors, all of our neighbors, doesn't get you earthly glory. It gets you hate. I think of my poor brothers and sisters. I think of my oppressed and abused brothers and sisters, my hurting and sick brothers and sisters, those who in their bodies, in their minds, and in their spirits have come to know suffering. I think about the black ecclesial tradition formed in slavery and constantly fending off the violence, pride, and greed of white supremacy. I think of Latin American Christians suffering under dictatorship. I think of the suffering of Coptic Christians in Egypt. Know this. The Lord is with you, especially in your suffering. There are things that the Lord can only teach you when you go through stuff. And there are strengths that he may be cultivating in you that only you can steward. Because it is only through death that we can enjoy the power, joy, and peace of resurrection. The devil intends for your suffering to break you. For you to succumb to despair, to, to hopelessness, for you to think that there's no way out. And the Lord wants this suffering to lead to endurance, and endurance to character, and character to hope. And that hope is a hope that does not put us to shame, because the Son of God went through that very same temptation. The powers of the empire and the world were arrayed against him, and he felt all of that pressure. He even bore it in his body, and then he calmly, like Bane, put his hand on, the, on his oppressor's shoulder and said... And you think this gives you power over me? The confidence, that kind of confidence in the face of the world is what union with Christ secures for you. Because the way of the cross is the way of salvation. And if you feel the weight of that, there's another thing for us to remember. Christ has called us to repent and to believe the gospel, to live lives of repentance, to live lives of resistance against the powers and the principalities, to, to live lives of robust love for our neighbors, lives of sacrifice, lives of suffering. But he's called us to do it together. In the early church, before the church was in bed with empire, it was common for Christians to see being in the imperial military as incompatible with the faith. We have nothing in the first three centuries of the faith affirming Christian military involvement. On the other hand, to declare loyalty to Christ meant leaving the military. And when those soldiers did, they found a community that welcomed them. 
They found a community that materially supported them. They found a community that encouraged them to dig deeper into the Lord's desire for their lives. They found a community that told them, good, now go even deeper. What does the Lord require of you, and how can we walk alongside you as you seek to be obedient to the Lord? And that is precisely the kind of community that the Lord has called us to be. We build one another up. We work so that none of us has to compromise the way of the cross. We fulfill one another's needs so that we can be free to love one another and our neighbors wisely and well. This is the kind of life that the Holy Spirit equips us to lead. And this is why Jesus died and was raised, to equip us to live that kind of life. Because the cross was a maximally shameful death. It was, a, it was a prolonged and, and public death. It was a cursed death. We're going to talk all about that next week. But perhaps the worst part of it was its isolation. Jesus died alone, but his resurrection gathered a people. And we can walk, and we can, and, and, and we can walk the way of the cross, and we can do so together. This is the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is to repent, to pick up the crossbeam that was made especially for you, and to pick it up with your other brothers and sisters who have been called to bear crossbeams along with you, and to march that march to the cross as Christ did. And we don't have to do so without hope, because as Christ marched to that cross, for the joy that was set before him, so also we can march. We can march in the midst of physical ailment, in the midst of spiritual ailment, in the midst of the numerous ways that the devil, the world, and our flesh wants to tell us you're never going to win. We can continue that walk because we have one another and because we have the Holy Spirit. God himself lives in you. If you're united to Christ, there is nothing that can destroy you. This is one hope that I hope drills deep into each and every one of your hearts. If you are united to Christ, you cannot lose. Let's pray.